Hello and welcome back to Much Do About Rugby, where we chat about everything rugby. Today, we are joined by a special guest. His name is Jean. He's from uh, Pretoria in South Africa. Jean, why don't you have a quick introduction for yourself? Hi, guys. Um, I'm just a huge rugby fan. I've been getting into it the last couple of years more and more. Uh, played some school rugby way back when, um, watching a lot of super rugby, um, starting to pay attention more to the European leagues. Um, and yeah, it's just, um, it's fun being on a podcast discussing with, with the Northern Hemisphere types, um, <laughs> rugby, strategy, players, things like that. Um, so yeah, it's just fun being here. And how much better we are than you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, obviously, uh, John, you're from South Africa. Um, so this is going to be hopefully part of a new little series that we're trying to start uh, rugby around the world, if, if you see what I mean. So talking to lots yeah. of different people from lots of different places, big rugby nations, small rugby nations, hopefully we get we get everyone on. Um, but yeah, if you could just um, tell us a bit more about maybe what level you've kind of played to before and uh, how high you've, you've got to in, in your own rugby experiences, that'd be great. Um Sure, no problem. My rugby experiences were limited at school. Um, and it, it sort of talks a lot about schoolboy rugby, um, which I know you guys want to talk about later. But it's a, it's a very, um, even at the young ages where I played, um, which I think you guys is uh, about the end of primary school. It's still our primary school age, about 10, 13, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's already a, a lot of emphasis on, on set moves and lineouts, scrums, driving malls, um, the characteristics of South African rugby, which is power, 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 be in the <laughs> other guy's face, tackle his head off. Um, and um, I didn't go into club rugby, but my high school had a, a big rugby following. And you could see there the guys, it was either you're getting uh, – you're getting a scholarship through a, a rugby union like the Lions or the Bulls, or you're going to go play for the local club. And the local, local clubs had each about probably two, three teams. Uh, local sponsors met up every weekend or every second weekend. Uh, obviously, the local ambulance service was in attendance. Um, so, yeah, it's, it was quite interesting um, to, to see a couple of the matches. Um, it's it can go from fun to violent very, very quickly. Um, and what position you know, were you? Uh, last time I played, I, for some reason, I was the shortest guy on the team and they made me hooker. Tends to be the way that works. Maxim's a hooker as well, so <laughs> not, not the tallest. Imagine <laughs> me hanging on to two guys and not touching the ground until we bind to go down. <laughs> I'm just floating there like a like baby Yoda, like <laughs> and then as soon as they go forward, I'm like, oh wait, I, there's gravity, I can touch the ground. Um, but it was a bit of an advantage um because having having not to rely too much on my own body weight to keep myself up, you do get to push your feet a lot further forward so you get to hook the ball quicker um of course number nine was shit as always um <laughs> so sorry to the number nines but you're always looking for a fight you never you're never really paying attention to what you're doing yeah that's so, true so what age do uh, south african schools start like full contact is it always full contact rugby because in the uk always. we only really start full contact at the age of eight and then like there's no line outs till we're 14 or 15 
No, I think for us, um, we go full contact. When, when I was at school, it's changed now. When I was at school, we started full contact from grade one, meaning age of seven. Jeez. Um, so, so that's where you get your like physicality from as a nation. Yeah. I either you either you make it or you get broken. So mm. make it or break it has a different meaning here. Um, it how it works now is we have what we call rip it rugby. So guys, essentially normal rugby pants, but they've got little rip squares on the side. Mm-hmm. So to just to promote a bit of safety, we had a couple of um, primary school players get severely injured, like neck injuries and um shoulder dislocations and things and it made headline news and all the mums shat in their pants so <laughs> they installed um the ripper rugby in most big primary schools where you're sort of playing a version of touch but it's not touch you have to actually rip the yeah, thing off. i think we call it we call it tag rugby here in the uk like they have the little like strands coming off the side of their belts yeah. and you just yeah. tag it and then you have to pass the ball once you've been tagged yeah, similar to that. But we started with we started with scrums at the age of eight, lineouts at the age of nine, <laughs> and yeah, driving malls was always just a thing. It's it's always like if you get the ball and there's four guys, form up and push it towards the line. Like they <laughs> can't tackle four of you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's contact is a big thing, yeah. Yeah, and obviously, uh, we 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 see it. We see the differences, like as as you move from primary school into the into the like senior school, I guess, or high school. You see the differences in how much like a nation like South Africa cares in compared to in comparison to England about about their rugby, and you can see why they'd want to like input that from such an early age. Because in England, uh, just tell you like a typical first fifteen match for uh, like, well, it's only really the private schools around here that, that play rugby. Um, but a typical, a typical first fifteen match will probably only have about one thousand people uh, watching it tops. Whereas in South Africa, I was reading up on it this morning. Sometimes there can be up to twenty thousand people watching. Uh, would you say this is a, like a, a key factor when it comes to thinking about like how good South African rugby is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I was doing my practicals this year at a at a pretty big school in um, in Pretoria, and they are, I think they, we've got we've got bands, um, so they're a, a band school, and rugby was huge. Like with them not playing this year, they had a virtual rugby tournament based on votes, and um, it's it's a huge thing. I know a couple of years back there was an incident where um the sort of the school's rugby union came out and said listen parents need to chill we're not going to take it if you're standing next to the um next to the touchline and you're shouting at the touch judges or insulting the ref or shouting at your own kid even because he made a knock or whatever it's about the sport not about playing it um and yeah we've got you've got things like um the craven week which is named after one of the big founders of South African rugby, Donnie Craven. So that's like the big thing. If you get, as a school player, invited to Craven Week, you are gold. You are the school hero because you're going playing against the best in SA. Guys coming from private schools. Um, I'm trying to remember now the one where Sia Kulisi went in PE, Grey College, um, the Bloom schools, Pearl, Jim, 
pole gym. It's you're playing against the top, top, top tier of South African schools there. And these are guys where the coaches are ex Blue Bull players, ex Lions players. Um, some of these coaches get paid by the school um, absurd amounts of money. Like I, I can't even imagine earning that amount of money without a degree. And these guys earn it purely based on the fact that they've played super rugby way back when or curry cup before that for a couple yeah. of years and it's just out of that experience so yeah it's it's a huge thing and it's a big gathering to to understand how big it is the the big event for a saturday sport day in south africa at schools is the first 15 of the two big schools competing my high school had a long-standing clash with um, a school year in Pretoria. I was in a little backwater town called Nelspray. So we would travel here or they would travel to us. And the big thing, and it was always around three o'clock in the afternoon when the heat starts to die down, was the first teams come out. And then it's like the parents are on their feet. The, the whole school is there supporting. It, it's almost cult-like in the sense of American football where the yeah. first 15 is, that is the big game. There is, you are there, you are paying attention. Like even the, the reject kids, the smokers and everyone, they're there. They're just not in the stands. They're smoking at the back, but they're there. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so, absolutely incredible, honestly. Like, yeah, you talk about your like relation to, you know, the American college game and, and, and American football and, and that. And it seriously does kind of remind me of that of the aspect of it just the fact that the whole town almost comes together not just the school it's the whole town comes together to watch the first 15 play um but i just think it's really interesting because it's so competitive and because everyone's desperate to be in the first 15 and everyone loves rugby so much like wherever you are um what problems do you think can arise from that because i know there there must have been problems with people doping and 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 just people generally getting in like into stuff they don't really want to do whether it be like doping or, or anything like you know bullying almost of, of, of other players because they want to be the best and because then they're not actually oh. being part of the team well a friend of mine he was playing we were we were about 15 grade nine our grade nine um, yeah, so yeah. this is just before you move to senior level of high school, your mm -hmm. last three years. And they were doing tryouts for first team. And he was playing, I think he was playing 11. And he was better than the other guy. And the other guy just waited till he had the ball and came in with a flying tackle on the shoulder, cracked his collarbone. And my friend just said, after that, I'm done. I'm not going to play a game where someone gets so pissed because someone is better than him that he comes in at a flying tackle and breaks my collarbone to make sure I don't make the first team. So it does get very, very competitive. Um, we do have, I don't want to say a big problem. Sometimes it gets called a big problem, the doping problem. Yeah. Um, the schools are fairly good at addressing it. Um, it's, it's like any problem. The moment it gets detected, it gets blown out of proportion and then everyone's sort of like, oh, it ha it's happening at that school. It's happening at that school. It's everywhere. And then it's like, of course, it's going to be everywhere. Steroids is everywhere in the world. So, you know, of course, some kid who wants to play first 15 
and can't muscle up or make weight is going to be like, well, if I use some of this and I gain a bit of weight or a bit of speed, the coach might pick me to play starting 15 or even just make the bench. So it is a bit of a problem, the competitiveness. Um, it leads to a lot of, I don't want to say like long-standing disagreements, but you'll get guys who they'll just look at each other and they'll be like, if we meet each other on field and you're playing for a different club or a different team, or even if it's a practice match, like first 15 versus second 15, if there's a, if there's a mall, you can see hands going in, someone trying to knock out a tooth or just grab an ear and yank a bit just to, just to piss the other guy off. So it, it gets to a level of almost bullying, but instead of bullying, it becomes more violent. And what's funny is we get a lot of stick internationally for our big number fours. You think Etzebeth, Bucky Spurta, yeah. the guys traditionally seen as the enforcers. And at school, those guys are the chillest guys ever. And <laughs> never yeah. the ones in the fight. It's always either the number nine, because number nines just want to fight, or it's the number tens or the um the wingers trying to go at it. It's never the big forwards. The big forwards are just happy. They're just there to smash into people. Um, so they get there full. It's the guys sort of at the back <laughs> who are like, I'm tired of running, I want to punch someone. Yeah, yeah. And I think we did get a... We had an interview with a bloke called Luke Upton a few weeks back, an author of a book called Hard, Hard Men of Rugby. And he yeah. interviewed Bucky's Bota for that book. And he just was so, so surprised about how, how chilled he was. Um, but yeah, I think it's so interesting that someone like Faf de Klerk just wants a fight, really. Um, uh-huh. yeah, we, we, don't, we don't really like him down, um, up, up here in the Northern Hemisphere. But um, no. Uh, with a quick question. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I, just, I was just wondering, obviously, um, I was just wondering about how, when you were talking about like how competitive it is, I was wondering like how hard it actually is to get into the first team at like a, at, like, a rugby school, because obviously all three of us played first team at our school, which was just like a, a grammar school um, in the south of England. Um, but none of us played uh, like county level or anything. We literally played schoolboy level in that, but we all made the first team level. But, so I don't know how, how, like, how many people in like a first team our school would be playing like regional or like academy or anything like that. And like, what does it, what, what does it mean to those people to like get into the first team? Well, to give you an idea, if you're looking at, if you're looking at a big rugby school, so let's take um, Afrikaans, Afrikaans Science, Afrikaans Boys High in Pretoria, which is literally right next to Loftus, which is where the Blue Bulls are based. To get into the first 15 there, you're almost, imagine Andre Pollard at the age of 15. You, you've got to have that natural ability, the warrior mentality. You've got to have something special if, if you're in a school like that, which is a lot of parents send their kids there because they know their, their kid has a talent and that school will develop the talent. So their kid is going to go places at that school, he can get to the Blue Bulls or the Lions or the Sharks. Um, some of those schools go a lot further. They will come to small schools. We had a guy bought out of our school, given full scholarship, um, hostel, pocket money, everything. Um, it's about 400Ks difference between uh, or drive between Nelspring and Pretoria. He got full scholarship to come to a big school year to play rugby for them. 
So, and he ended up taking it, but he never went to, um, to a professional union such as the Blue Bulls or one of those places. Um, I think what, in terms of people who make it to, to professional level, uh, lots of guys join clubs. About, I'm in Centurion, we've, which is just a district of Swane. We've got our own club. Uh, Pretoria Central has got their own clubs. Um, Pretoria East has got its own club. So at club level, it's pretty easy to get in. Uh, making first 15 is a bit harder. At school level, going to first 15 to at a big rugby school, you have to be magical. At a normal high school, you don't have to be that magical. You just have to be either the fittest, the strongest, or the biggest. Um, so yeah, it's like where Sia Kulisi went, um, which is Gray College. Mm-hmm. There, it's, it's a rugby school. It's you, the boys are there for one reason, and that's to play rugby. So for him to have been in that team means, you know, he, he grafted hard to get to that level. It's not something where you just show up and it's given to you. Um, it gets quite competitive. Yeah, no, yeah. really, really interesting. Sounds, sounds a lot more competitive than it is over here. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, it's kind of almost chance if you get picked for an mm-hmm. academy, you just get kind of scouted from the... And I'm sure it does happen in that way in South Africa, but people kind of play for their first 15 and it doesn't mean as much i guess um but Ed, if you compare it to like i don't know i guess it's like comparing gray college to like harrow or wellington or like big schools like that where i think it is as difficult or it's probably it's obviously ridiculously hard yeah, to get in it's, it's hard like to half get in the first team the are on first scholarships team. it's hard to get into the first team because like um you know see a Khaleesi got given a scholarship we do that as well we give people scholarships um but the thing is, they're not like people don't necessarily go to the school f- just for the rugby, like yeah. somewhere like Gray College. It will be like 90% of the pupils there will go for education and education alone. And the rugby will just become part of it. And if you're particularly good, you make the first 15. But the education is the key factor and the fact that it's a prestigious English boarding school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, then, but then again, like I think some players, some people went there just for rugby. Yeah, like some the, people the will, 100, 100%. Yeah. No, but I'm just saying 90% is, is, yeah. is, is that kind of aspect of it. Um, but now, obviously, I just want to talk about the differences in, in, club, in club level and stuff between um, the UK and, and South Africa and possibly some of the you know, reasons why we see so many South African players moving from, uh, from South Africa to the UK and all places around Europe. So just to give you some, some stats and facts, in the... World Cup final team that beat England, unfortunately, still through gritted teeth. Um, there were. I won't in, say in, 32 12. I won't. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in the starting 23 for South Africa, there were five Premiership players and two top 14 players. And then apart from that, Kobus Reinach, who wasn't included in that 23, also played in the um, Premiership, obviously, for Northampton that season. So just to put it in perspective a bit, like the last time a South African rugby side, super rugby side, won, won that competition was in 2010. And that was the Blue Bulls, obviously, or just the Bulls. The Lions have made it to three finals in the last four or five years. Um, and, 
you know, do you think that the Super Rugby sides basically are taking a massive hit because all these great players, these great South African players, I know it's only might only be eight or so, but there's still that's quite a chunk of the squad. Do you think it's really affecting the Super Rugby sides and the way that they're performing in that competition when it seems to just be New Zealand sides that are dominating? Yeah, I think the the big thing, and if if you don't mind me just going into a bit of detail, our club level is when we talk about club level, we're not referring to to places like the Bulls. Yeah. Those are those are unions. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. The, the Bulls union is probably in charge of all the clubs in in the Pretoria area or the greater all Transvaal area, which is essentially Gauteng. Um, so club level, there's no real pay. There's a couple of benefits. And if you win the tournament, then the club might pay you something. So you get a little thing with, you know, you scored third. So each player gets like a grand or 500 bucks. And there's a physio at every game or at every um, practice session, probably doing her final year practicals or his final year practicals. So he's getting hours in. Um, at union level, the big problem we have, number one, is distance. We're far away from everyone. So that is the big thing facing the Southern Hemisphere. Argentina is way the fuck over there. We're down here at the bottom of the world. New Zealand and Australia are way the fuck over there. So, and we're all the way up here. <laughs> and you guys are way the fuck up there. So <laughs> we're sort of just away from everyone, which is why we often, if you look at the Springboks, they go and tour. So they go to the UK, then they play England probably two, three times, then they tour the whole of Europe, and then they come back and people come here and play. Because it's it's a 18-hour flight getting to New Zealand, it's a 10-hour flight getting to you guys, and you have to remember these guys fly with three, four tons of luggage. So it's a big logistical thing to get everyone and everything there. Um, and Super Rugby is just hugely expensive. If you look at Sanzar, we as South Africa are giving most of the money to to Sanzar, uh, from what I understand from news locally. We are, and Supersport has got most of the broadcasting rights mm-hmm. and the camera rights. So, but that doesn't translate directly into funds into the unions. So, a guy like Kobus Reinach is who's a great player, and he's probably played here. A couple of years for the Blue Bulls or the Cheetahs, and then he was yeah, he played for the Sharks, yeah, mate. <laughs> sharks. Uh, he's he's a bit before I got really into yeah, it. Yeah, no worries. But he he probably earned good money here, had a nice life, and then he was like, okay, but I'm tired of kicking and tackling. I want to see some strategy. I want to see some actual thinking rugby. I want to say not just crash rugby. Yeah, and. It's only been the last three or four years from about the time the Lions made the Super Rugby final that thinking rugby got a thing in South Africa. We, it used to be, I want to say, not even doctrine, I want to say instinct to crash until you reach the, the try line. That's it. You, you crash ball, crash ball, crash ball, either until you crack the defense or you reach the try line. And those guys, I think they get one tired of it. And two, the money in Europe is insane because they all convert it back to rands and then they purchase like half the country back here. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure all the, all the guys playing in Europe, A, they sort their parents out for life in like two paychecks. And then they purchase houses and cars and they've got massive, massive estates here. They give money to wildlife conservation and all sorts of things. So for them, it's pretty easy. They go over there. Bucky's Buerta did it. He went over there for 
five, yeah. six years, earned a shit ton of money, and then came back. And now he's got charities, and he's got his own business, and he retired comfortably. So I think it's it's partially financial, and partially just getting out of the stigma of South African rugby, which which mm. sort of it it stopped developing for a while there. Like post 2007, because we saw that we could overpower the world, the 2017 were just brutal to everyone. They they just wanted to murder people. They could have literally just been a kill squad. Um, and I think we sort of stopped there, like we'll power over everyone. And then when the rest of the world upped their strategy, it took us a while to get there. Um, yeah. We didn't decline overnight. But slowly, we sort of stopped developing and we got caught into what a local guy would call global rugby, which is just run into the other guy, run into him again, yeah. run into him again until either you break or he breaks. No, 100%. I think it's interesting as well, looking at just like, you know, a couple of years before this World Cup uh, or, or even closer, it was that the loss to New Zealand, you know, that was a massive point in South African rugby's whole history, losing, getting nilled by 50 points to the All Blacks, like one of the fiercest competitions or, or one of the fiercest rivalries in world rugby. Um, and I just think to bounce back from that, it just shows that maybe, you know, these players that are going abroad and they're learning something more about, about the game in the, same, in the same way that they can already play the game in the way that South African rugby's traditionally been played. So I do think it's interesting. Another thing that I think we probably should touch on when talking about um, unions uh, in, in South Africa is the cheaters and the kings, because obviously they are part of a European league um, in, in uh, the, pro, the Pro 14. So what, what, well, Mal, if I come to you first, because I feel like, John, you've done a lot of speaking and stuff, so <laughs> no worries. Uh, but but Mal, like obviously we've seen the Chiefs and the Kings come up here, but what what's the point really? Because they they a they can't perform because obviously all the travel, I guess that's a big factor. But what do you think it's working for a start? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. At, I haven't really been following the uh, like domestic uh, South African league at the moment, but I think the cheaters are. Um, back playing in the South African league. Curry Cup. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously they they weren't uh, I think the yeah the Cheetahs and the Kings, they weren't that successful when they were in the Pro 14. I think we have touched on this a, a good while back in um a previous episode. But I think obviously they were getting dominated in the super rugby. Like they weren't like obviously you have the other teams who were like the Lions who were competing, but then the these the two teams were just like weren't doing much. So I think it probably did them some good playing some teams in the uh, what's this called in the uh, Pro 14 who obviously aren't there are some not so great teams the Pro 14 um, so probably good to get them some games where they can actually get more of a chance of winning. But I think it also <laughs> links back to um, what John was saying about a different play style. It might help introduce a new play style. I don't know if that was something that the South Africa rugby would be considering at all. But yeah, I think I think obviously. I think I don't know how well the the uh, cheaters are doing, and I don't know if the kings are still around. But I don't know how well they're doing in the in the what's called the South African League now. But I don't know, John. Who is actually winning the South African League at the moment? Um, the the Super Rugby Unlocked, which is what it's called here, versus that unpronounceable Kiwi word and 
just <laughs> super rugby australia um the the blue bulls won it mostly because jake white spent all of their budget so there's a cap on how many play how much money you can spend buying players and he was like well let's see how close i can get to that cap without actually reaching it um but the thing is the blue bulls were in a sort of a they sort of went through the same type of depth as the Springboks went, where they were losing constantly. Um, it's not a surprise that Andre Pollard left to go to Montpellier. Um, I could I could have predicted that even if I watched one game of Super Rugby last year. Um, so um, they've won it this year primarily because they've got a coach who isn't um, stuck in his ways, who's been paying attention. He's had some exposure overseas. I'm not going to go on about him having won the World Cup because he seems to have changed the way he's doing things way back when. Um, but the Cheetahs, they did, they did good. Um, I was actually talking to a guy last night about um, a game the Cheetahs played. Yeah, and you could see um, their number nine had, had incredible control of how fast or how slow the phases were going. So at one stage, they were playing against the Stormers and he was just rocketing out the balls and the phases were coming one after the other after the other. And then the next moment, it's like, okay, they're starting to see our plan. So we'll just slow this whole train the fuck down and I'll take my time. And the ref is like, use it, use it, use it. And then he like flicks it out. And the whole team <laughs> is just sort of like strolling. And it's, I think that's the thing is they, they've learned and sort of adapted to, to the European style of play where you can spend 25 phases just going from side to side, not really going anywhere, kicking, and then waiting for that 1% chance to make a break. Whereas here in South Africa, it's we're going to give it to a big guy who weighs 125 kgs, and he's going to run into four of your guys. Hopefully, he'll offload, and then you have no one to tackle the second big guy, so he'll run past to the winger, and the winger will score. So, um, yeah, and unfortunately... South African rugby has pulled a bit of a dick move. They've decided that we're going to send our teams to join the Pro 14. So I don't really know what the future of Super Rugby is at this stage. But it sounds like the Blue Bulls, the Lions, mm -hmm. no, the Blue Bulls, the Sharks, and the Stormers will be moving north to go play in the Pro 14 which has caused a lot of uproar because the Kings are seemingly now defunct. Um, without the funding to play in the North as a union, their future is... Well, they never, had, they never had any sort of funding whatsoever. You know, I can remember watching in, when was it, 2016, 17, when they had their one or two seasons of Super Rugby, and they would get about four people to every match. Um, yeah. So if you're not even... There's no point in funding them. I mean, they should technically just be playing curry cup because they'll get more crowds playing there and it could be like there's there's other teams in south africa that don't play super rugby um but play curry cup they i don't know why they're so desperate to keep it going when clearly they can't perform at the same level as everyone else and they're not getting the crowds or the funding so for me it doesn't really make a lot of sense but mm -hmm. a team like the stormers would definitely get you know some interest flowing because they <laughs> <laughs> um can yeah. we talk quickly about like super rugby attendances because i think it's really interesting obviously we, we spoke a bit about school rugby and how it's like so crazy and you can get up to twenty thousand people per game but 
I'm just interested to hear your thoughts, Jean, as to why that doesn't necessarily translate across to Super Rugby, where, I mean, from, obviously, I've never actually been to a Super Rugby game in South Africa, but from watching some games, it often looks like the stadiums are half empty or very empty. Um, but con- compared to the UK, it's like the other way around, where school rugby, there might not be as many people, but in professional rugby, you'll very rarely find a game that's not sold out. Um, understandably, in the UK, there's slightly smaller stadiums, but I was wondering what your sort of point of view was on that and whether you had any insights to why that is. The the big, I think the big reason our, our stadiums here locally empty, especially with if we're playing a local derby match, say the Lions against the Bulls or um, Sharks against Stormers or something like that, is um, number one, most people have access to DSTV. So it is extremely cheaper to, you're paying a thousand rand a month, which is, I think it equates to say 80 quid for you guys. Um, And you can watch it 500 times over. You can pause the game when you want to, like if I have to go get a beer, I can pause the game and go get a beer. And, you know, everyone is two minutes ahead, but the game didn't progress for me. So I think number one, people have, too much access in terms of TV. Um, Supersport sort of overdeveloped that where everyone can see the game on TV. So most people either stream it through DSTV. Uh, we usually stream it through my mother-in-law's account or um, I'm not paying a grand a month. I don't have that. Money. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, you know, it's it's just they don't want to go because and this is the sad part about South Africa is it is dangerous. Um, it is dangerous sometimes to take your car and park it near a stadium. If you can park in the grounds, great. There's security. If the grounds are full and our grounds, unfortunately, don't have the, the parking areas that you'd wish they have. Um, I think with Uber and Bolt and other e-hailing services arriving, and if the stadium start thinking outside the box, it's it might be better. Um, but if you take at, at Loftus, for example, they don't sell any hard liquor because the guys just used to get shit-faced and punch the fuck out of each other before the game had even started. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even use. There was no use keeping the away fans away from the home fans because they would just meet each other at the bar and fuck up the whole bar. And then everyone's best. So everyone's punching each other. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it's so a like logistical issue rather than there being a lack of interest? There's there's a lot of interest. I mean, there's a lot of Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups and discussions. Um, It's logistically it is bad. You can't take public transport to go there. I mean, our buses don't run on weekends. Um, I could theoretically take the Gau train and go there, but then I'd have to be on the last train back, which is half past seven, which is pretty early. So if they're playing at seven, I have to leave at half time to make it to the station. <laughs> and then hopefully I get here. Then I have to get another taxi to get me to my house or I have to convince one of my friends who hopefully isn't drunk to, to come and fetch me. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing I wanted to touch on is there's a close relationship in South Africa. And I'm sure it's the same there. If you're watching rugby, you're drinking. And the problem is there has been a witch hunt of drunk driving in South Africa, um, especially in the large metropolitan areas. Unfortunately, that's where our big franchises are based. So a guy just feels like 
I'd rather stay at home, get drunk at home, not be pulled over, not have to fork out two and a half grand to bribe the cop um, to let me go home. So mm. I'm going to stay at home and just get drunk there. Then the only person pissed at me is my wife. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the UK, like all the, all the stadiums are more like situated in cities where with, mm. with a lot of good transport links. But in, in rugby, you're allowed to obviously have beers. They've got bars and stuff. You're allowed to bring them to your seats, which is quite different to football um, or I don't know, soccer in the UK, where you're not allowed to bring your drinks to the, to the seats. And I think that may, because I don't know if that's to do with... Um, the hooligans. <laughs> yeah, who, yeah. Which, but in rugby, it's uh, a lot more like you get, you can even get, you even get fans of opposite teams seeing like next to each other sometimes yeah. like just because of the way that seating works like and that's not really much of a problem but yeah i think a lot of people just like it's in like where max is in bath like like it takes him like 20 30 minutes to walk from his um his house to the wreck the stadium the stadium there and so yeah. if, if, if when we've gone to a game, we've literally just gone there and then we can just walk back to his afterwards. Mm. I'm so, interested just how much actually is it, do you know, to like go and see a Super Rugby game? In it's it's not that expensive. It's about, I think you're looking at the ticket price per person of between, for a local match, um, anywhere between two and 400 rand. Um, okay. So divide that by about 16 to get your... Uh, Math. Probably like twenty quid. <laughs> Quick let's math. call it. Let's call it ten quid. Okay. Um, oh, that's so cheap. Uh, that, that, I that's didn't even do the math. That's for a local match. If it's let's say it's the Bulls versus Crusaders, the big one that everyone wants to see, um, because we're hoping against all sanity and knowledge that the Bulls will beat the Crusaders, which is essentially <laughs> the All Blacks in different jerseys. Um, <laughs> then you're looking at a bit more expensive, between four and seven hundred rand. So maybe take it up to about 30 40 pounds that's per person um we are allowed to in in all stadiums be it soccer cricket whatever you're allowed to take beer to your seat um it's just i was making an example of loftus specifically where there's no hard liquor allowed in the seats just because yeah blue bulls fans are completely ridiculous <laughs> yeah no, that's that's uh, probably a good good idea not not to have that then if they are um, you know looking to get in a fight essentially, but who's to stop them from drinking you know ten beers and doing the same? <laughs> um, but yeah, John, cheers for chatting to us about South Africa and um, yeah, super interesting to really get an in a proper insight into what it's like playing rugby elsewhere in the world. Um, I think for the last ten minutes or so, shall we, we should shall we just cover, I've got one have question. A, about oh. actual international super yeah yeah i think we should probably cover a little bit of the actual rugby that happened this weekend obviously a super <laughs> exciting weekend so Mal, why don't you kick it kick it off uh wait well we talking about the results or actual or stuff yeah. happening rugby? we're talking about results now oh okay all right uh because I, I i just wanted to ask a question about um what's cool about well obviously it kind of interrelates with the whole results from the weekend about england getting another win um against Ireland they're they're up to number two in the world which is only behind South Africa which but they haven't played an international game so far so I don't know what what do you make of the whole um the whole thing of like South Africa not playing in the the uh the tri-nations um especially with the whole thing with uh Argentina playing without any practice games but then 
South Africa saying that they need practice, but then is it really to hold on to their number one <laughs> status? Because <laughs> they're because uh, they got the double, the double points, so that's why they're so far ahead. But yeah, I don't know. In comparison to England, England seems to be like well, obviously we're English fans, but they are the best Northern Hemisphere team at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see whether they'd whether actually better than South Africa now. I I think. Um it's it's a bit of both i think it's a bit of a reputation prediction because we we are the king the kings of the world um having won the world cup um but <laughs> at at the same time um for us when our government decided to allow rugby we were in a bad state uh pollard had just messed up his knee three of our four starting locks were injured um we didn't have any locks that we could just pull out of super rugby having had previous experience at test rugby. Um, so it, we, we were in a bit of a tight spot to, to say the least. Um, a lot of our players who went North um, that we rely on in the national team, um, they sort of, I think we couldn't, if I remember correctly, we couldn't get the clubs to give them time to come back. Uh, we couldn't get the Super Rugby started quick enough. And a lot of it was we had a thing called the Springbok Showdown, which is where they looked at um, the star players for the next generation of Springboks, meaning guys who will start getting test match time in the next year or two. And the results of that match, I think, just indicated to Ricey and his team that if we go out with this big target on our back where everyone just wants to murder us to show you might have had the World Cup, but we can still slap you around. Um, number one, we would have gone in undercooked. And number two, we would have probably had players injured. Um, in terms of Argentina and their upset, I think Argentina plays more at an emotional level than we do. Our aggressiveness isn't really emotional. There's a whole thing about in Chasing the Sun, Rossi Rasmus always saying, fuck them up, fuck them up, fuck them up. Um, <laughs> Couldn't and, bring myself to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's totally worth it. Um, there's there's actually no. <laughs> um, there, there's not a lot of opponent bashing. It just gives you insight into the state SA Rugby was in under Alistair Kutsia and what happened when Rossi came in and the difficult issues that that he instead of hiding them back there in the closet or under the rug, you know addressing things in secret he just said well we're a fucking team so we're going to talk about this and if you're uncomfortable then fuck off so yeah the um, fuck seems to be his favorite word <laughs> um so yeah i think it's a bit of a reputation thing that the springboks just said we'll give it a pass this year um but also i think realistically it wouldn't have been good for us we the net gain wouldn't have been there um i'm very amped at what's going on in argentina with the Los Pumas doing what they're doing. Um, I watched the game yesterday and Australia seemed to click that if you antagonize them enough, they do stupid things in front of the ref. So, <laughs> which, which just made me pissed at Australia. Um, but yeah, I think that in the long run, um, the Springboks are focusing on the British and Irish Lions. We've got the championship every year. And next year is the British and Irish Lions. You guys are all wanting revenge. I can see you sitting there plotting it. Um, <laughs> Wearing his so, Lions jersey. <laughs> 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 um, 
So I think Grassi and his team are working really hard. You'll probably see us play countries like France and Italy not long before. Um, definitely a couple of games against New Zealand and Australia and Argentina, just to just to get us sort of on a, a quick trajectory back to to international level. Um, it is sad. I really wanted to see the Springboks play this year. I was amped to see everybody coming here, trying to take us on, us going there, trying to take them on. It it would have been great, but unfortunately, someone in China ate a bat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, classic China. Um, no, obviously, we all love watching Argentina, you know, get really emotional. And I, I play for my country, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, uh, just on that note, I did actually notice, obviously, linked to that is linking back to the, you know, the union, the unions rugby and the super rugby. The Haguares did actually reach the final of the super rugby before all the COVID stuff happened. So that's like an aspect of it where actually they have been performing at that level and it's translating into their international performances because to have two results back to back in the Tri-Nations, one where you beat New Zealand, renowned as, you know, at the moment, the third best team in world rugby, but you know the 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 top team in world rugby always the the ones to beat essentially, um, and then to to go out and draw against an Australia side who are also coming off the back of beating New Zealand, I think, you know, what a trajectory that they're, they're on, and I just think it's massive credit to them. Uh, but can we please get to the more important topics at hand and talk about this bloke up here? Yeah, do you want to lead the way, Ed? 100%. So this guy up here, I'm not sure if you know who he is, Jean. He's um pretty good rugby player. He's, he's called Maratoje. Um, he is, in fact, the best rugby player in the world. And <laughs> yeah, that basically says it all. England with a convincing 18-7 win over a pretty dull Ireland side. I mean, England, what a defensive performance. I'm not sure if you saw any, any, any of it, Jean. But um, Mackie, what did, what, did, what did you think? Yeah, I think, like you say, I think defensively it was pretty wild. I watched a post-match interview with with Maratoje because he, he won Man of the Match and they were like really not very happy with the second half at all. Um, I think in the first half, England were like outrageous, um, like complete domination. I think it was 12-0 at halftime, which definitely like flattered Ireland. Um, I think England could have scored more. Johnny May's second try was one of the best tries I've ever seen. Um Actually, incredible try. Um, but then the second half, I th- like Ireland absolutely dominated possession-wise, but England's defence was just way too good, led by that man, Itoji, Sam Underhill and Tom Curry, I think, mainly. Um, just absolutely outrageous. Um, England's very- line speed was just so good. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's what I was saying. I was, in the first, out of, yeah, we were all talking in the group chat during the game, and um, I was saying how Ireland haven't been awful. I'm half Irish as Bear in mind, so I'll offer a bit more of a balanced view. <laughs> balanced. <laughs> so, well, I, I support England, but I'm half Irish. As so he I'll sits in the Aviva Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I was saying how England were were obviously playing really well, but Ireland weren't playing awfully, and they were putting on pressure, but it was England playing so well that was keeping Ireland out, and it was obviously the creativity of like Johnny May being able to run the whole pitch and score a try. That is obviously... Mm putting making the points difference but i think the, the fact the second half the fact that in that ireland were in in their 22 pretty much for i know a good like 20 30 minutes and they didn't get points on until literally the last bit shows ireland 
I think Ireland, obviously, they didn't get the win, but they are on the up. They're definitely, I think they played better than they did in the last game against Wales. Yeah. But obviously, that also showed how ridiculously good England are. Mm. Like the fact that they, if that had been like any normal defense, I'm sure Ireland would have got a good few points in them. Like the amount of time that they're in their 22, like, I mean, it's just obvious that. But I think. Farrell, the coach, he said after the game, he was like, "Yeah, but this is this was a good game for us. Like, it we come here, we game. play, we play was... England, and and we're in we're in a stage of building now after a poor World Cup, a really poor World Cup, yeah. where they lost to Japan. I, I agree. And barely scraped through the the group stages. So yeah, yeah I think. Well, I thought it was also they got battered like forty like earlier in the year, got put battered by by them. By England, like in the Six Nations, I don't know, it was like 30 or 40 points or something. And then before the World Cup, they obviously got battered by England by like 40 or 50 points. So obviously, and closing that gap to England, obviously it shows like England's were by far the favourites there. But Ireland were obviously, I thought they were good as well, but England were just ridiculously good. Mm. I think it's like, what I thought was interesting about the performance was it did to an extent emulate like Sarri's when they played Leinster. <laughs> And I'm genuinely serious when when I say you that. You are Max so annoying, Saracens. Because if you look this at isn't, this, isn't about Saracens, Max. This is about England. No, no, yeah, <laughs> but okay. Look at half the pack, half the pack, which is essentially where where England won the game is Saris. And if you look, if you look at, and don't laugh because this is actually genuinely serious. Because like, if you look at the exact game plan that Saris had when they beat Leinster, it was literally put bombs up on James Lowe. That's exactly what Farrell did the entire game. I don't actually think it was that effective. But then if you look at the, like, defensively, and it is like a Wolfpack defence, I feel like not even just this season, but England over the last two seasons have have managed to emulate, like, what Saris have been doing for the last five seasons by having that core of Saracen's defensive players in that pack. Um, like you say yourself, Maratoja, who essentially leads the defensive charge, is just an absolute psycho. Like yeah. and the way he just tackles people and like he can turn over the ball, like he can do everything. Um, what I thought was interesting as well was Tom Curry's performance and getting over the ball, um, yes, and disrupting like ball at ruck time. And I think it was interesting because how we spoke about Jack Willis um, coming into the starting fifteen. But in my opinion, like I know we always go back to talking about him, but I just thought it was interesting because they mentioned him. But like Tom Curry, he really took on that like turning over the ball role. Um, and like the need for Willis in that game in particular was not really there for me, given that you also have a Toja who can get over the ball. Underhill gets over the ball. Vinopola. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I think that's Eddie was saying they wanted more of a physical so, side, which I yeah. think I think Curry is definitely a bigger, pretty yeah, much a bigger, mate, better form. And then Underhill yeah. just absolute monster. I think Jean right right decision. John, what do you make about England at the moment and especially their performance yesterday? I'm not sure if you caught any highlights or anything, but... I, I caught some some glimpses this morning. Um, I will say this. Um, England, in my opinion, besides the All Blacks, going into last year's World Cup, I sort of had a premonition about England. and I was thinking to myself, this is a team that's... You know, everyone was talking about Ireland, 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 and Schmidt, you know, having created Ireland, and Ireland knocked the All Blacks how many times? And I was thinking, yeah, but Ireland has sort of been constant, and you don't win a World Cup being constant. You you get constant brings you to the World Cup. To win it, you need to have something ready to play that's different. And England has been constantly 
give it to Eddie Jones, massive credit. He's been building them up um, slowly but surely. And the way they open games, um, I was just the other day watching uh, the Squidge video again uh, of their inbound tour year. And open games, it's massive pressure from the get-go. They like You guys like to score early. You like to make the big hits early to impose yourselves on the other guys where you're chasing, we were chasing the game 15 minutes in. You guys had scored three tries in the first 15 minutes and we were chasing. So it's not that you're not a physical team. Physically, you can match them. I think if it wasn't for the whole bomb squad tactic, um, you guys would have matched us a lot better in the final. And I'm definitely worried about next year's Lions tour. Um, because you should be, mate. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you guys will be stuck in South Africa trying to get a flight out. Just remember that. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's physically, it's, it's going to be a huge mashup. It's not going to be like 2009 where the box just, uh, yeah, 2009 where the box had their way um, physically and it was red cards and yellow cards being handed out wherever. Um, I think you guys are going to match us pretty evenly. Um, I don't think Eddie is going to imitate the box, the, the bomb squad tactic, but I won't be surprised to see an extra forward or two on your guys' bench um, to match us in the later half of the game. And I'm worried because you guys are, you've got Farrell who for all his worse than worse tackling ability um, is uh, he's got great distribution skills, great kicking skills. It'll be, he, can play 10 or 12. He's good at cre creating a line break. Um, you've got excellent wingers. Um, you've got good forwards. So I think to underestimate you would be dumb. And the fact that you guys have kept playing when we were stuck doing Super Rugby Unlocked and it's Pro big, 14 big. and those things, I think it's going to give you an edge um, mentally coming in. You guys are going to be more prepared. But then again, I have complete faith in the genius big dick Rassi Erasmus. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm definitely not underrating England. Um, physically, the days of box physically outmatching other people are pretty much over. If you look at international rugby players, everyone's fucking big. Like, mm -hmm. we can be honest. The, the difference between Etzebeth and Itoje is marginal. Um, and it comes down very much in the way they're used. Uh, Itoje is used, his size is used to be a fetcher because he's hard to stop. Etzebev is used as a defender because he's hard to get through. He's got long, big fucking arms that he can wrap around you and you can't get out of it. So it's to compare them is sort of like saying, okay, well, I made an apple smoothie and I made apple juice. I yeah, actually disagree with that. I think, I think Itoje is mainly used defensively and for line outs and because he's got those massive lever arms like Etzbeth, you know, I think he does a similar job. I think they're both kind of in that enforcer role, but Etojo just hasn't been labeled as an enforcer yet because he, you know, he, he steals the ball as well, basically making him a better yeah. player. Yeah. I think, I think he is more, <laughs> a bit more rounded than, than Etzbeth. Um, but then I've been, Etzbeth has got good offloading skills. That one offload to arm was just pure sex. Yeah. Um, and then um, if, you look at, if you look at, for example, um, if you take uh, your number six and seven, comparison to our six and seven, it's, again, size-wise, yeah. there's not Chalk a lot cheese. of difference. Exactly. It's, um, it's not about size anymore. It's about how the coach wants to use the player. Um, 
Peter Stefftetue was supposed to be a lock and he ended up being a number seven. And he just spent the whole final running at your number 10, trying to impale him. So that, that was Rossi's whole plan right there. Go for the 10. That's all you do. If, you, <laughs> if he looks like he's going to get the ball, try and kill him. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't want to hear what I've said about uh, Peter Stefftetue toy in the past. I think I was just a little bit butt hurt about the rugby. Um, <laughs> no, it's... He's, he's a good player. He's not, in my opinion, the greatest player we've ever there had. There you go. Thank you. No, World Rugby Player of the Year. What What is that? I will, I will give you... I will rebuke you with one thing. His work rate last year was phenomenal. He no, I agree, but you can, have, you can have work rate and then there's being like world class and World Player of the Year needs to be world class. And I think Cheslin Colby had that over Peter Stuttetoy. Like, that's a hard argument to have, eh? That's hey. a hard argument because hey, I, I want them both to have it. I want them <laughs> both to have it. And Cheslin Colby, I just want to have it because I'm also short. So he's representing all the short fuckers out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you keep dreaming, mate. Keep dreaming. Um, <laughs> I'd love to no, ask um, John's opinion on something. Um, obviously, with uh, Eddie Jones, oh, with Eddie Jones, um, <laughs> with Eddie Jones um, making the comment about Ireland being uh, being called the U- United Nations because of the having like, I think it was five players in their uh, squad who are foreign born. What do you make of uh, the whole eligibility thing? Matt, we all have like quite interesting views on it. Um, and obviously South African players seem to be quite prevalent in this area, like especially for like uh, Scotland and um, Ireland. You've got like, yeah, Rue, who was playing at the weekend or yesterday even. I think, um, A, there's a lot of ancestry there. So a lot of them might be going back to like, I'm talking about 200 years ancestry. There's no, no common ancestry like grandmas from Ireland. This is about like 200 years back. So they feel some sort of connection to Ireland. And I don't know, it's something about Afrikaans guys and Ireland. I think it's Conor McGregor. I blame it on him because he's got a similar attitude to a lot of Afrikaans blokes. He's just like, come, come. Do you want to fight? Huh? Huh? Do you want to fight? <laughs> so um, now I think the eligibility thing, it's, it's a huge issue because there's there's this stigma in SA about if you're young and talented, get out of the country. Uh, the country's going to the shits. Meantime, the country's been in the shits the past 20 years. It's not really getting better, but it's not really getting worse. So um, I think a lot of them are just, will leave because we're not going to get picked for the spring box purely on the fact that I want to play intelligent rugby or I want to play different rugby. And up until recently, until the Erasmus era, I was behind them. Go overseas, by all means, go. And if you get eligibility and you can play for Ireland or you can play for Australia, there's some guys who's getting picked for Australia who is South African born. Um, But you have to understand that for you guys, it's different. They're leaving us behind. You guys are getting our, our guys. They're coming there and possibly taking the place of one of your people. So I think for me to have an opinion on it would be unfair because we're saying go and you guys are saying, well, no, why the <laughs> fuck are you coming taking my guy's place? Like, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's kind of weird because some people think it's absolutely fine. And, you know, we've had this three year eligibility rule, which has been changed to five years now. Um, but it was actually going to be my rugby thought of the day uh, just to wrap up the episode. So I might as well do it now. So uh, one third of the Irish starting lineup has no ties to ties to Ireland except the three-year residency rule. Um, and I just think like that could be five 
you know, Irish people who have lived in Irish Ireland all their lives. And I just think it's different, you know. Um, but then again, I have said in the past, you know, if you go out there and you sing the national anthem and you're proud to play for Ireland, then there's no reason why you can't adopt it. So I think it's more of a personal, personal thing. And some people like it, some people don't. Um, but I think we've spoken for quite a long time now so we should probably think about wrapping up there is one thing that i wanted to mention because i am getting more and more into it nowadays uh before we before we do wrap up was the women's rugby uh so we had england versus france in an incredibly exciting game at twickenham before the england Ireland match in, in, in the men's rugby yesterday um and emily scarrett with a last gasp uh 25 23 uh win uh, she she kicked the goal at the end and it was just an incredibly exciting game with the last 10 minutes to go 13 points down England were uh, so you know to see two of the top teams in, in women's rugby fight it out at Twickenham you know that you can't really ask for much more I mean the standard is different obviously but still some absolutely insane running rugby I mean some of the French tries were incredible and I would just recommend to anyone out there who's who's a maybe bored on a Saturday afternoon if there's women's rugby on don't be afraid to turn it on they need all the support they can get at the moment um obviously with difficult times for everyone the men's rugby's taking a lot of the uh limelight at the moment I think women's rugby needs to come into come into the picture a little bit more because it is exciting and it is uh I will deny this the world over but I expect the um the roses the English red roses yeah the Red Roses, I expect them to win the World Cup next year completely. 100%. Yeah. They've, I, I they've been they drawn with France in their group. They've been drawn with France in their group, actually. So that'll be uh, they, really they interesting. They this year as well, weren't they? Yeah, to see how this to see how this result from, from yesterday affects the World Cup. Because, you know, France could come out with an absolute vengeance. And uh, you know, Which France will show up? That's, that's always the question. Um, but yeah, I expect England to just dominate next year's World Cup. Your, your women's rugby is, is just leagues ahead. Um, Hopefully. Emily Scarrett is absolutely incredible. World, play, world Women's <laughs> Player of the Year. Um, and also the ref was really good as well. Rate her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, <laughs> that about wraps it up. Uh, obviously, rugby thought of the day I've already said, so we can't do that right at the end. But, um, John, thank you so much for coming on, mate. You've been an absolute pleasure. Very chatty and uh, some really, really interesting insight into the into the um, rugby in South Africa and what really goes on over there. So thank you so much for coming on. Mackie, Maliki, um, any final thoughts before we leave? No. Um, <laughs> just rest in peace, Wales. I thought they were a bit <laughs> average yesterday. So. Yeah, no, of course, Wales are rubbish at the moment. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you can find us obviously on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. Also, we are obviously on Instagram and Facebook. So go check out our social media pages. Um, yeah, we've got some some good episodes in the lineup for you, so stay tuned to them, and uh, we'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you again, John. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.